listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. This episode covers the life of Christ and the Gospel of Luke. You can enjoy more messages like this with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. If you'd like to request Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event, click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. What you believe about God is the single most important thing about you because your beliefs about God will also affect your beliefs about yourself. And when you start thinking differently about God and you start thinking differently about yourself, you begin to think differently about other people and your situations. And when you're thinking about God comes into alignment, you're thinking about yourself comes into alignment, you're thinking about other people and your situations comes into alignment with God, then you'll be able to experience the practical truth of what Jesus says in John chapter 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. One of the reasons why we preach and teach the word of God, why I go through the word of God verse by verse, why we want you to understand very clearly that the things that I'm presenting are not my views but God's views are because something needs to happen in your life, same thing that needs to happen in my life. We need our thinking to be changed. We need to think correctly about God, about ourselves, and about each other. Now, in the Bible, in regard to the life of Christ, we understand that the incarnation, the first coming of Jesus, which we're going to celebrate, you know, we tend to celebrate in a heightened way during Christmas time, the incarnation, absolutely important that God became flesh, lived among us for a while. The sinless life of Jesus, absolutely important. And so the incarnation is a very important doctrinal theological truth that every Christ follower needs to understand. Along with that is the crucifixion of Jesus, that God made him who knew no sin become sin, that the sinless, spotless son of almighty God took on your sin and my sin, whether or not you accept him or not, Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins to make a statement about your sin, and then it does make an eternal difference whether or not you accept that sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. The crucifixion is absolutely important because without it, if there could be any other way to get into heaven apart from the crucifixion of Jesus, then Christ died for nothing. So the incarnation, absolutely important. The crucifixion, absolutely important. And the resurrection, absolutely important because the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is God the Father's definitive statement about the acceptability of the life, the sinless life, and the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. So the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and then we have the ascension of Jesus. The ascension of Jesus, which is what we're going to look at in our time together now, is not an afterthought in the Gospel of Luke. It's not something that's just kind of tagged onto the end as if, yeah, after the crucifixion and after the resurrection, there was the ascension of Jesus, and there's not really theological significance or practical significance in the life of a Christ follower. No, the ascension of Jesus is absolutely essential for a lifestyle, for a lifestyle that greatly glorifies God. Once we begin to understand the ascension of Jesus Christ, everything in our lives as Christ followers begins to change. Look with me at Luke chapter 24. The last four verses as we finish up today 
our message series through the entire Gospel of Luke. After today, we will have done it. Can you believe it? We will have gone through the entire Gospel of Luke verse by verse. Here it is, beginning in verse 50 of Luke chapter 24. Then he, Jesus, after promising the gift of the Holy Spirit, he's told them that they are going to be clothed with power from on high. And if you think the Gospel of Luke series has been significant and important and life-changing, wait until we begin our series through the book of Acts and we explore how Christians should live. There seems to be some confusion today about how we should live as Christians. And so the antidote for confusion is clarity provided by the Word of God. So we're going to have a great time shortly. It won't be short at all, the series itself, you know that. But in a short time, we're going to go through the book of Acts together, which was also written by the writer Luke. So look with me at Luke 24, beginning in verse 50. Then he, Jesus, led them out as far as or toward the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Luke wraps up his gospel using the word bless or blessing again. He started off his gospel in the first chapter and the second chapter of this very gospel using that word blessing when the angel appeared to Mary and says, blessed are you. When the angel appeared to Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, blessed, you'll be blessed. When Simeon is holding the little baby Jesus, the blessing is used there, the word is used there again. So Luke is bringing us full circle, understanding the blessing of God. And we're seeing now that the disciples, the apostles grief over not initially understanding what we have the privilege of understanding today, courtesy of the Word of God. We have insights today through the Word of God that they didn't even understand fully at that particular time. Now their grief is being turned to joy because their Savior is now alive again. He's conquered death. And then something is added to all of that through the ascension of Jesus, all right? But they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. This helps us understand that Christianity originally, when it was birthed, was a sect or an outbirth of Judaism. They didn't see Jesus as having nothing to do with the Jewish people. These are Jewish people who have accepted Jesus as their Messiah. It's we who have separated the Jewish roots of Christianity from the faith. It's we who misunderstand the Jewishness of Jesus. And here it's important to understand that Jesus is the promised fulfillment of the Messiah, the anointed and the appointed, the chosen one from God the Father, sent first and foremost to the Jewish people. And if you're not a Jew, you're grafted in. The Bible says we are grafted in with the people of Israel. So Jesus was a Jew. And someday, a Jew will rule the world. We know that he rules now. But one day, this same Jew, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was slain, 
and is alive again will rule in a new heaven and a new earth with you and with me and with everybody and anybody who has simply given their life to him as their savior, their God, their master, and their Lord. Jew and non-Jew, the word that's used for that in the Bible is Gentile, or Greek is sometimes used, depending on what translation you read, what you prefer. So Jew and non-Jew alike, a common savior, all the different colors of the spectrum from black as night to as white as a sheet of eight and a half by 11 copy paper, and all of the shades of color in between, and all of the sin that could be possibly imagined in the world, your sin, my sin, all of that being washed away. And the one that we have in common is Jesus, our Savior, our God, our Master, and our Lord. And he will rule, as the Bible says, on the earth, on a new earth, with a new heaven, and you and I, followers of Jesus Christ, will be with the Lord, not for a season, but forever. Now, it's important to look at what happens here and the response of the disciples here right after Jesus is taken up into heaven. Look with me at verse 52. And they scratched their heads, wondering what all of this meant. Return to Jerusalem more confused than they were at the start of the day. Not what it says. There was no confusion early on about the deity of Jesus. This would have been completely inappropriate for them to worship Jesus. Remember the Jews, you shall have no God before me. There was one God. His name, his covenant name was revealed to the Jewish people to Moses, when he says, he asked the Lord, who shall I say will send me? Tell them my covenant personal name, Yahweh. My covenant personal name. To know the name of God is to know something about God that is not common. It connotates a deep knowledge, an intimacy, and a relationship. And so that name was given first and foremost to the Jewish people. And Jesus was and is a Jew. We know that he taught and teaches even to this day through the word of God. He teaches the truth without any type of impurity whatsoever. And so for Jesus to allow or to tolerate himself being worshiped or for the apostles and the disciples who had been with Jesus now for three years, about three years, to come to this conclusion to worship Jesus would have had to mean, would mean that Jesus was a terrible teacher, misled them, and tolerated blasphemy. But what we need to understand today in the 21st century is what they understood in the first century, that it's a good thing to worship Jesus. It's the appropriate thing to worship Jesus, to have every part of your life center upon the person and the works of Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Jew of Jews, the King of Kings. So they're worshiping Jesus. Remember that the next time a Jehovah's Witness, sincere as they might be, shows up at your doorstep 
and tries to get you into a discussion to help you understand that Jesus was merely a prophet, merely the one sent by God, merely the Messiah. It's important to understand all of those things, that he was the Messiah, he is the Messiah, that he's a prophet, the prophet of prophets, as we're going to look at in just a moment, the priest of priests. But if that's as far as you go, you don't understand the full identity of Jesus Christ. One of the key things that's driven at the, the direction of Scripture in the New Testament is to help you and me, to help us understand and connect the dots that Jesus is not only the great high priest, that Jesus is not only the prophet of prophets, that Jesus is also the king of kings, meaning God, the Lord of lords, meaning Yahweh in himself. This is what John drives at in the first chapter of John's gospel. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then you go down to verse 14 in John chapter one, and the word became flesh, the incarnation, and lived among us. You can understand a lot of things about Jesus, think that he's a good person, that he was a great teacher, that he was a sage, that he was a miracle worker, that he was and is the anointed Messiah, that he was a prophet from Almighty God. But if you don't come also to the conclusion that he is God in the flesh, you do not yet understand who Jesus was and who Jesus is the biblical Jesus. There are are a lot of false understandings about Jesus, but the correct opinion of Jesus is the one that you will come to. You'll arrive at that conclusion when you study the Word of God, the Bible. That is where we get the complete picture of who Jesus is. And this is why a steady diet in the Word of God is so vitally important in the life of a Christ follower because you cannot follow a God you do not know. And you will not know the God you are called to follow if you are not in God's book that he gave to us, the guidebook that we call the Bible. It's through the Bible that we gain an increasingly clear understanding of the identity of God, what we believe about God. Imagine that what we believe about ourselves in relationship to the truths that are revealed in God's word about his identity. And in course, what we believe about each other and other people. All of that is put into alignment and rectified simply by meditating and marinating in the word of God. And of course, I can't use the word marinating without telling you what's happening at my house right now. In two sealed plastic bags in my refrigerator, there are pork chops that as of last night, I almost went to bed. Can you imagine the blasphemy of this? I almost went to bed yesterday and forgot to put the chili and lime seasoning with the cooking sherry and with the parsley and the seasoning into that plastic bag with those pork chops that we're going to hopefully, uh, you can tell I'm not Jewish, right? With the pork chops that we're going to have at our house later on. There's something important about putting seasoning on meat, whatever your favorite meat is, not just before you put it on the grill, or before you put it in the oven, 
the longer up to a certain point you let that meat marinate in that seasoning, the more delicious and tasty and juicy. Father, thank you for moving this morning during our time. In Jesus' name, amen. In the same way, the more you marinate, you allow yourself to be in the word of God, the more the word of God gets into you and actually changes the way you think, changes the way you live. And how many of us understand that we continually need to have our thoughts transformed? How many of us? How many of us understand that we need to have our lifestyles transform and to be in alignment with our corrected thinking brought to us courtesy of the word of God? So this understanding that Jesus is God is revealed to us through the scriptures. If you try to just comprehend it naturally and say, well, that's not possible, humanly speaking, I don't get that. No, you're not understanding the central role of the word of God, the Bible, in changing your thinking about God, in changing your thinking about yourself, in changing your thinking about other people. Even if you have a problem forgiving somebody, even if you have a problem in a relationship and you're struggling with that, invite the Lord Jesus Christ into that problem, courtesy of the word of God. And you will be amazed at how God Almighty will change your thinking about the situation, change your thinking about maybe your own attitude. He might change your own attitude, give you the ability to do what you can't do in the natural. In the same way, when we marinate in the word of God, when we saturate ourselves in the word of God, when we read the word of God, when we have a steady diet of the word of God day in and day out, when you're in a life group here at the church and you go to that life group, our small group ministry, family-sized ministry, and if you're not in one yet, you need to be in one, what happens in those life groups is that we marinate even further in the word of God. We saturate ourselves even further in the word of God and we have discussions with other believers, as the book of Hebrews says, do not forsake the assembling with one another as some are in the habit of doing. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25. Some people think that the Christian life is one that they can live all by themselves. Well, it's not. Christianity is designed to live shoulder to shoulder with other brothers and sisters in Christ so that you can marinate on the word of God, saturate yourself in the word of God, see how the word of God is transforming the lives of other people and be encouraged and you'll be able to say, I want what you have. God did a work in your life. I want God to do a work in my life. And it all begins with surrender to Jesus and then getting into the word of Jesus so that God himself can change our thinking. Understanding the deity of Jesus, that Jesus was and is God is something that is revealed through the scriptures. And so if you struggle with that, if you're not sure about that, get yourself into the Bible and look for the many ways that Jesus is presented as God. And here's one of them in Luke 24, verse 52. They worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now let's back this up a little bit and understand the priestly ministry of Jesus in verse 50. Then he led them out as far as or toward the vicinity of Bethany. So they're in the Mount of Olives area, which is where, by the way, Jesus returns 
and the Mount of Olives will split in two. Prophecy is presented in the Old Testament for that. When Jesus returns, literally, physically, bodily, his feet will land on the Mount of Olives. So he leads them out toward the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. He's functioning as the great high priest that he was and that he is, okay? And then he, he ascends, and we'll pick that up in Acts chapter one when we get there to the book of Acts chapter one. But look with me now at the book of Hebrews. We're gonna spend a little bit of time marinating in the book of Hebrews chapter one, the book of Hebrews chapter one, called Hebrews because it helps us understand the Jewish traditions, the Old Testament traditions and the sacrifices and how Jesus as the Hebrew of Hebrews, as the great high priest, fits in as the fulfillment of the great high priest, as the great prophet, and as the Messiah presented in the Old Testament. So in Hebrews chapter one, verse three, speaking of Jesus, it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. There again is a nod to the deity of Jesus, not kind of an imprint, the exact imprint of his nature. And he, Jesus, upholds the universe by the word of his power, which is in keeping with something that only God himself could do. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So here we're going to begin to transition from the ascension of Jesus. In Acts chapter one, it says that a cloud hid them from his sight. So now we're going to answering the question, well, what happened to Jesus after he ascended? Where did Jesus go? If you have a little child, a three-year-old, and you do magic tricks with them and you make things magically disappear like your thumb, where did it go? The kid will sit there, where did it go? And so as grown adults, we ask ourselves this question theologically and practically, where did he go? Where did Jesus go? Hebrews chapter one, verse three helps us understand that after he provided purification for sins after the cross, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And I'll tell you what, it's super significant when we get to the book of Acts and we read about the martyrdom, the death of the first martyr, the apostle Stephen. And he looks up and he says, I see the son of man standing. Wow. Y'all come back now, you hear. We'll cover that when we get to that portion of the book of Acts. Something significant about Jesus standing where the book of Hebrews says that after Jesus provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So that's the place that Jesus is now. That's where Jesus is now. That's where he was going after the ascension. Now look with me at Hebrews chapter four, verses 14, 15, and 16. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, reference to Luke chapter 24, reference to Acts chapter one, the ascension. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. This becomes tremendously significant this has tremendous practical significance that Jesus can identify, he can empathize with your weaknesses and in mine. And that Jesus did not sin, but was without sin, and we needed somebody who was without sin to come in and do what we could not do for ourselves, 
pay the penalty of our sin, which is death. That's why Jesus died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin and mine. The moment we personally give our life to Christ as our savior. But in every respect, he has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then, in other words, in response to this, with confidence draw near to the throne of undeserved favor, grace, that we, may, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Anytime you find yourself worrying, that's a time of need. Anytime you find yourself in temptation, that's a time of need. When you're on, I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm on my smartphone a lot, texting, surfing, emailing on my smartphone. Part of it is the nature of what I do, what I have to do to communicate with people. I'll go to websites and I'll even look at some of the things that I will post that get posted on other websites and then off to the side, there are fish hooks. I'm minding my own business. And there are fish hooks there, photographs of things that are not reputable, things that are not decent, things that you would not want to look at. We're talking about regular websites, not inappropriate websites, but there can be inappropriate things on a website, you understand what I'm saying? Inappropriate things on a website that you would not sit there if Jesus was physically manifest in your presence, you wouldn't sit there and look at those pictures with Jesus. And these things can be on regular news sites, regular unsuspecting websites, and so you have to learn to control your eyes. You have to learn to control your heart, you have to learn to control your mind, you have to learn to look away from those things. You have to learn to do that. You have to train yourself. And in the same way that you get into a gym and you pump iron, some of you guys are big guys. You're strong. You've got muscles. It's obvious from your calves all the way up to your shoulders that you know how to lift weights and you lift heavy weights. You're strong. Others of you do that by lifting logs and moving things and having yard sale after yard sale. You're always moving stuff, but you know that the more you lift heavy things, the greater your ability to lift heavier things. And the same way I have found in my own life through my own failures, and maybe you have too, that you can train yourself not to look at certain things. And the more you train yourself not to look at certain things, the greater your ability not to look at other things. Do you know what I'm saying? You connecting the dots? If you teach yourself under the grace of God, under the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, to say no, to stop looking at the little things, quote unquote little things, you'll have an easier time not looking at the bigger things, right? And so what Hebrews is saying in chapter four that we have somebody who's interceding for us, the great high priest, that in our time of need, we can come to Jesus and depend upon him and rely upon him. Depending upon Jesus is not just during your time of when you're having the Bible study or when you're in a church service and you're worshiping and singing and raising your hands. No, every moment of every day, we are to be walking with Jesus so that any moment, every moment of the day, 
when we have a weakness, when we have a time of need, we can call out to Jesus and we can do that with confidence. See, when we talk about these scriptures, when I'm presenting these scriptures, I'm not just doing it for the purpose of a message that I'm presenting. I'm doing it so that you can actually say, that's a great scripture that I can commit to memory. That's a great scripture that I need to remember so that when I go through fill in the blank, when I go through whatever it is, I'm going to remember that scripture. And one of the things you can do is remember Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14, 15, and 16, that when you're out and about and sin presents itself while you're minding your own business, while you weren't even looking for it, but it was looking for you, you can remember, Lord Jesus, I come before you with confidence, not because I am worthy, but because you are worthy because of the undeserved favor that you've given to me and because of your position as my great high priest, you tell me in Hebrews chapter four that I can have confidence to come before you and I've got a need right now. I'm weak right now. I want to look at that. How many of you, don't lie in church, can identify with that? I want to look at that. I would love to give you a piece of my mind. No, what we need is the mind of Christ and to give people a piece of the mind of Christ. Boy, I ought to, I'd love to punch him in the nose. Maybe you've heard that statement by a famous actor. Came out and said, I'd like to punch a certain presidential candidate in the nose because of his lewd comments, because of the presidential candidates' lewd and admittedly disgusting comments that were made. Of course, the famous actor conveniently forgets the litany of tremendously wholesome family movies that he was in, Goodfellas, The Godfather, etc., <laughs> etc. Et we're all hypocrites if we're really honest before God. But in Christ, we become recovering hypocrites. And so whenever, in the course of you living your life, in your time of need, see, I'm giving you these passages of Scripture courtesy of the Word of God. God is giving them to us so that we can live by the book. And when we live by the book, life changes. Look with me again, Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 23, as we're exploring this idea of Jesus being the great high priest. Just presented... Just for example, from Luke chapter 24, verse, the last four verses, Jesus lifted up his hands and blessed them. Why is he doing that? Because he's functioning as the high priest that he was and that he is. So Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, the former priests were many in number, meaning the ones that ministered in the temple, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues Look at that, because he continues forever. Consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost. This means absolute salvation. Your salvation is not in jeopardy and in flux. If you give your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior, your God, your Master, and your Lord, he saves you utterly from all of your sin. I don't care, and more importantly, God doesn't care what your sin was because he looks at the cross and your faith in what Jesus did. Hallelujah. There is no sin that's bigger than the cross of Christ. 
Consequently, he, God, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, through Jesus, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you understand that that's what Jesus is doing for you right now? That's what he does for the Christ follower. I hope we get excited about this stuff. Don't anybody sit there and say, boy, that guy over there is really excited about this message. I hope we all get excited about the word of God. I hope we all get excited about the word who became flesh and lived among us for a while. I hope we all get excited about the fact that while we were still sinners, Jesus died for us and now he intercedes for us. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. What about those who don't draw near? They're not saved. Since he always lives to make intercession for them, the saved. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need like those high priests, the human high priests, Old Testament high priest to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people. That's what the Old Testament priest would do, offer sins for himself and then for the people. Jesus didn't have to offer sins for himself. That's what this is saying. He didn't have to do that since he did this once for all when he offered up himself for you and for me for the forgiveness of our sins. And so when we see in Luke chapter 24, in verse 50, and 51, that he lifted up his hands and blessed them. We're seeing Jesus function as the great high priest. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem. Now we have here Jesus being presented as the great high priest as a transition is taking place, humanly speaking, from our vantage point. And then we also have Jesus presented as the prophet of prophets. He's functioning as a prophet. And this should bring to your recollection, if you know the Old Testament, if you don't, no problem. As you marinate in the Word of God, as you read the Word of God, as you spend time in the Word of God, you'll become more and more familiar with God's Word. So when you come to a passage like this about Jesus being taken up, your memory might be jogged to go to 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 2, in particular, Verse 11. Now, before we get there, we have to understand that there was this mentoring process going on with a great prophet named Elijah, with a J, E-L-I-J-A-H. Elijah was a prophet of God, and he was mentoring another prophet, an up-and-coming prophet whose name sounds very similar to his, but it's spelled differently, Elisha, E-L-I-S-H-A. So Elijah was mentoring Elisha, and Elisha had a little bit of a detachment phobia. He was a little bit afraid of taking on the ministry that God had called him to because he didn't feel like he was ready. You know anybody? who was called by God and doesn't quite feel like they're ready to be a spokesperson for God. We will all have moments where we will fear and be afraid and say, God, I'm not ready. I can't do that. You've called somebody else. I can't fill those shoes. Well, Elisha, three times with Elijah, Elijah has to tell him three times, I'm not going to leave you. 
I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. And then what does Elijah do? He leaves him. He leaves Elijah. And this is how that happens. In 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, and as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. This is the kind of thing that a prophet does. And so Jesus, physically, bodily, I mean, it was one thing to be resurrected, for them to be able to put their hands in the nail marks, in his feet, in his hands, and Thomas, the apostle Thomas, doubting Thomas, as we refer to him, in the side of Jesus. He's got a, Jesus has a resurrected body, a physical body that you could touch, that you could feel, that could eat things like broiled fish. And then literally, this prophet of prophets, Deuteronomy 18 talks about God sending a prophet of prophets. That's another passage of scripture for you to write down and look at to understand so you can connect the dots. This prophet of prophets, Jesus, does something befitting of a prophet and bodily, physically, in their presence, he goes up into heaven. So we have here, just in these few verses, you didn't realize that there was so much here in four verses of scripture, did you? But when we marinate in the word of God, when we take time to really slow down and hit the pause button and let the word of God get into our lives, we realize that this book is such a book that man couldn't write if he would, wouldn't write if he could. You can't make this stuff up. You wouldn't make this stuff up to have 66 books with about 40 different authors, many of whom did not even live while their peers were alive. And to have this stuff make sense, there is no other book on the face of the earth like this book, the Bible. And the reason why is because this book is not simply the opinions of people, it is revelation from Almighty God to change our thinking about God, to bring it into alignment, to change our thinking about ourselves, to bring it into alignment, to change our thinking about each other, to bring that into alignment, and to change our circumstances. Did you know you are a circumstance shaper? God has sent you to change the circumstances that you see around you. That's this whole idea of your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's up to you and it's up to me to be an agent of change, a catalyst of change, a circumstance mover and shaker as a byproduct of our thinking about God changing, our thinking about ourselves changing, our thinking about each other changing, our thinking about our circumstances. So we have Jesus very clearly, just in a few verses of Scripture here, presented as the great high priest, blessing them, ascending in a way that's in keeping with a great prophet, being worshipped the way only God could be worshipped. We don't see Elisha worshipping Elijah, even though that was a close relationship, even though that was a powerful, divinely orchestrated relationship. Only Jesus is worshipped this way. And we know from Scripture that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God Almighty. Look with me as Hebrews chapter one, verse three made that clear, but it's not just there in the book of Hebrews, it's also in Ephesians chapter two. Look with me at Ephesians chapter two, an important verse of scripture, an important section of scripture to commit to memory or at least to be familiar with so that you can refer to this because this does have practical implication for you. 
the ascension of Jesus and his being seated at the right hand of God the Father has everything to do with how you're going to live your life for the rest of today, for the rest of this week, and for the rest of your life, however long God might have you. The ascension of Jesus Christ is one of the most practical things that God could do for you. Ephesians chapter two, verse one. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. The Bible presents people as being in one of two camps. You're either a son or a daughter of disobedience because you haven't given your life to Christ. And that's what your life is characterized as. Even if you feel like you're a good person and you go to church and I was raised Catholic, and Italian, that means I was raised with a lot of guilt and a lot of pasta, okay? <laughs> you could go to church, think you're a good person, but if you haven't personally given your life to Jesus Christ as your Savior and your God, if you haven't accepted him as your master, if you don't believe that he's the, the promised Messiah given in the Old Testament and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins, you can't be good. You're dead in your trespasses and sins, and worse than that, you are following the devil, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are characteristically disobedient. You can't obey God even if you think you're obeying God because dead things don't do anything. Dead things are dead things separated from God. So what the Apostle Paul here is doing for you and for me is helping us understand this is the way you used to be. This was your situation because he's writing to Christ's followers. He's writing to believers. And he's going to help them understand the practical ramifications of the ascension of Jesus Christ for those who are now no longer disobedient to God, but obedient to God by faith in Jesus, all right? Look what he says in verse three of Ephesians chapter two, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature objects of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by undeserved favor, by grace you have been saved. Are you ready for this, saint? Hold on to your seat because this is a softball that God Almighty is going to lob you and it's going to change your thinking about God, your thinking about yourself, your thinking about other people, and your thinking about your circumstances. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Wow! Not only did Jesus ascend and take his rightful place at the right hand of Almighty God, but he took you there with him. He took me there with him, not because we deserve it. It is by undeserved favor that we're saved. It is by undeserved favor that we're given that position, that seat of favor. It's time for you and for me to stand as if we were sitting do you understand what I'm saying by that? It's time for us as Christ followers to stand as if we really understood 
that we were seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Once you understand that you are seated with Jesus Christ, you will live like sin is beneath you. Once we understand that we are seated with Christ, right next to him, the great high priest, in a position above every name. There is no name above the name of Jesus. Once we understand that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, in a position of victory, in a position of authority, once we understand that we are seated with Christ, in the heavenly realms, we will begin to live as if sin were beneath us. Once we understand that we are seated with Christ, we will begin to live with worry beneath us. Once we understand that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, we'll live with temptation beneath us. There is nothing that you are facing that is above the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing that is above you. Nothing that you're facing, nothing that you're going to face. What needs to change in your life and mine is our thinking about God, our thinking about who we are in relationship to him by his almighty, beautiful, matchless, undeserved grace, his favor that he's given to us. What needs to change is our attitudes about each other. What needs to change is our perspective about our circumstances because the truth of the matter is more true than anything that might be going on in your mind and your heart otherwise. And the truth of the matter is that when we understand that we are seated with Christ, everything contrary to the will of God is beneath us. And we begin to live accordingly. We begin to live accordingly. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're seated with Almighty God himself at the right hand of Almighty God. There is nothing higher than that position. There is nothing that can overtake you or overwhelm you because there is nothing that had overtaken or overwhelmed the Lord Jesus Christ. So the next time you find yourself struggling with sin, you say, that's beneath me. The next time you find yourself struggling with worry, you say, that's beneath me. The next time you find yourself struggling with hardship or difficulty, you say, that's beneath me. And you can say it based on the authority given to you as a follower of Jesus Christ, because when you understand that you're seated with Jesus Christ, everything contrary to him is beneath you. Can I get an amen for that? You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters Podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com or download the free Courage Matters app. Interested in requesting Michael for an interview, guest appearance, or as a keynote speaker for your event? Click the Invite tab on the Courage Matters app or on CourageMatters.com. In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking.